myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather here this morning. We thank you that we can meet openly. We thank you that we all have copies of the scriptures at home to which we can refer. We pray that you will help us to all be attentive this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you as we delve into this passage. Be with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, good morning. It is always a privilege to stand in this pulpit before you to preach the word, and I'm delighted to be here this morning. Our text this morning is from 2 Corinthians. This is one of the two letters that we have in the canon that were written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Now, there are many parallels to be drawn between first century Corinth and 21st century Virginia. Both are pluralistic societies administered by governments who at best are indifferent and at worst openly hostile to the true church. Both have a popular culture that promotes sexual sin and licentiousness, elevating it to near-cultic status. Both promote a view of individualism and personal freedom without responsibility that leads to sinful and self-destructive behavior. Now we know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul planted the church in Corinth. There was a dispersion Jewish community there, and Paul ministered in the synagogue until he was forced to move his ministry elsewhere. We know that Paul spent at least 18 months in Corinth on that first visit when he planted the church. Now, to say the least, Paul certainly had a tumultuous relationship with the Corinthian church. Scholars think he wrote at least two additional letters to them that have not been preserved. He made multiple visits. False teaching arose by false apostles. And the Corinthian church struggled to maintain doctrinal purity, and to remain obedient to the gospel of Christ in the face of other teachings. This morning, we are focused on the opening verses of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Here Paul begins a new section of the epistle in which he refutes the attacks the false apostles have made against him. He defends his ministry and methods against his accusers. I'm going to make some comments about the text verse by verse, and then I will spend the balance of our time on application. The text of 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6 could be the subject of a whole series of sermons, but given that I only have this week, I'm going to focus primarily on verse 5. My thesis this morning is that if the gospel is true, and if we are united with Christ through faith, 
then we, like Paul, must strive to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, let's jump into the text. Verse 1, and I'll read each verse and then discuss it. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. In verse 1, Paul sets up his appeal to the Corinthians. But before he states what he is asking for, he tells them that his appeal is based on the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This is emblematic of Paul's approach, and it flows right into what he says next. Paul's default approach to ministry is to be meek and gentle. He emulates Jesus himself in this way. Be meek, gentle, and humble when you can. But when protecting the sheep against an adversary who requires it, the shepherd must sometimes be very bold indeed. Paul then describes himself as humble when face-to-face, but bold when he is away. He is echoing an accusation being made against him by the false apostles. There is more about this down in verse 10, which we're not going to cover this morning, but we, we know it from there. We don't know exactly what the false apostles were teaching beyond what we can learn from Paul's response to it. But here, he is ironically embracing the accusation. Verse 2 says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some, of, some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. In verse 2, Paul gets to the appeal itself. The word ESV translates as beg does not have a sense of someone who is in destitute circumstances seeking charity, but rather it implies someone making an earnest appeal based on an established relationship. Paul is the spiritual father of the Corinthian church, and he is appealing to them on that basis. He is trading on his prior relationship to make his request. He is asking them to respond in such a way that he need not show boldness when he's dealing with them. He wants the believers under his apostolic authority to heed his reproof and reject the false teaching that has infected their church. He then spells out that he does indeed plan on showing boldness against the false apostles themselves. He cannot abide wolves among the flock. Paul describes the false apostles as some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul will distinguish this for us in the next verse, but it appears that the false apostles were accusing Paul of living according to worldly judgment and standards. Nothing could be further from the truth. The false apostles, perhaps blinded by their own lies, were accusing Paul of doing the very thing they themselves were doing. And that should be familiar to us here in 21st century Richmond. They were arguing that the Corinthian church should reject Paul and his teaching because he was of modest appearance and presence by the world's standards. Verse 3 reads, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In verse 3, Paul concedes that he does walk according to the flesh. This is in contrast to walking according to the flesh, which is what he is accused of. Paul is making a distinction between this present life in which we live in physical bodies and being given over to the world's judgment and standards. 
In his excellent commentary on 2 Corinthians, Dane Ortland writes this, Paul now articulates in verse 3 a fundamental axiom of all gospel ministers and indeed all true Christians. We live in physical bodies, but the deepest realities of life for those in Christ are not physical, but spiritual. Paul thus uses the word flesh in two different ways as signaled by the two different prepositions used, in versus according to. In the flesh refers to mere corporeality, whereas according to the flesh refers to a mindset in accord with our natural fallen instincts. Instincts given full vent by the super-apostles in their ridicule of Paul. That's the end of the quote. In the second part of verse 3, Paul starts using military language, stating that he is not waging war according to the flesh. Now, martial language is used frequently in the New Testament. The church in this present age is indeed at war. But it is not a war fought with swords, guns, aircraft, or missiles. We refer to the church on earth as the church militant, but our battles are not physical in nature. Paul tells us here in Scripture that he was engaged in spiritual warfare, fighting to protect the church against false teachers and fighting to win people to Christ. Moving to verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 4 continues the same thought. Verses 3 through 6 are a single sentence in Greek. The warfare that Paul is engaged in and that we as the church militant here in the 21st century Virginia are engaged in is fought with the power of God, not by earthly means. We don't use rifles, but the means of grace. The word of God, prayer, and the sacraments are the tools we have. These seem modest and of no use by the standards of the world but they're imbued with the power of God. Paul's weapons of war are not physical weapons at all, but the spiritual tools he has have the power to destroy strongholds. The Greek word translated as strongholds here in the ESV literally means stronghold or fortress in its primary sense, but it has a secondary metaphorical meaning of anything on which someone relies. Here, it suggests anything that stands in the way of the gospel, and specifically the rhetoric and teaching of the false, of false opponents, the false apostles. He may be of little account by worldly standards, but he has the power of God to overcome the false teachers. In verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In verse 5, Paul describes for us the means and methods of his ministry as he contends with the false teachers in pagan Corinth. He is destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the gospel. Significantly, he is not destroying people. The servant of God seeks to reclaim those who oppose him for Christ. And Paul himself knew this well as a former persecutor of the church. But he has no tolerance for the false teaching itself. Paul is very bold here 
just as he is accused of being. He does not say that he gently reasons with his opponents and gets the better of the discussion. Rather, he destroys their arguments and lofty opinions. There is a careful balance here of being rhetorically forceful and having no tolerance for false teaching. Using only the degree of boldness and rhetoric that is required. We are reminded of 1 Peter 3.15, where we are told that we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet to do it with gentleness and respect. The second clause of verse 5 will be our principal focus for application this morning. I will have much more on it later. But for now, please consider how it sits here in context, conjunctively with the prior phrase. Paul describes his ministry to the reader as destroying arguments and lofty opinions and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Taking every thought captive is part of the cure for being deluded by false arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. Consider the warning Paul writes in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Worldly wisdom and philosophy are opposed to the foolishness of the gospel. Matthew Henry writes this about our text in his commentary. What opposition is made against the gospel by the powers of sin and Satan in hearts of men? Ignorance, prejudice, beloved lusts are Satan's strongholds in the hearts of some. Vain imaginations, carnal reasonings, and high thoughts or proud conceits in others exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That is by these ways the devil endeavors to keep men from faith and obedience to the gospel and secures his possession of the hearts of men as his own house or property. But then observe the conquest which the word of God gains. These strongholds are pulled down by the gospel as the means through the grace and power of God accompanying it as the principal efficient cause. All right, and finally verse 6 being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. In verse 6, Paul finishes his prior description of his ministry to the Corinthians. In addition to destroying arguments and lofty opinions and taking every thought captive, he is also ready to punish every disobedience. This seems to be a reference to church discipline and a further assertion of his apostolic authority. The phrase at the end when your obedience is complete, helps explain it. Part of the obedience required of the Corinthian church is that they must stop tolerating the false teachers in their midst. He's trying to deal with the church members gently while exposing and ridiculing the false apostles. So, brothers and sisters, that puts the text in context for us. As I mentioned at the beginning, there is much that could be said about this passage. I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning exploring what it means for us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is a tall order, but it is for our good and the good of the church. 
As we seek to understand what it means to take every thought captive, I think John Calvin's words are very helpful, and he writes this. He wrote it in Latin. This is English. Um, Now, the form of expression must be observed when he says that he brings every thought into captivity, for it is as though he had said that the liberty of the human mind must be restrained and bridled, that it may not be wise apart from the doctrine of Christ, and farther, that its audacity cannot be restrained by any other means than by its being carried away, as it were, captive. Now it is by the guidance of the Spirit that it is brought to allow itself to be placed under control and remain in a voluntary captivity. Now to the non-believer, this will necessarily seem shocking. Particularly, as Americans, we place great value on personal freedom. Now in the political sense, there is doubtless value to personal liberty. But that is not the province of the church. We serve our resurrected King Jesus, and he demands total submission. The scriptures, and particularly our text this morning, set up an antithesis between the wisdom of the world and the gospel of Christ. And if you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, if you're going to be progressively sanctified, if you're going to be renewed in your mind, then you're going to have to turn from the wisdom of the world and learn to think like a Christian. So what does that mean, Matt? Well, I have three areas of application for you this morning. Of course, it's three. Um, First, thinking like a Christian. Two, nothing is neutral. And third, a Christian worldview. First, thinking like a Christian. As I said a minute ago, there is an antithesis between the wisdom of the world and the true wisdom of God. They are in opposition. We see this clearly in verse 5 of our text this morning. Paul is talking about this opposition in military terms. We are at war. And it is no small proxy conflict, but a total war. It is the same conflict that is described in Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. If the Bible is true, it necessarily must become the foundation of all our thinking. It must become central to our worldview. If it is true, then all other truth claims that contradict the Bible are necessarily false. By way of example, the Bible states clearly in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 that homosexuality is a sin and a perversion of the created order. Unless you are insane, you cannot simultaneously assert that the Bible is true and also claim that homosexuality is a morally neutral or perhaps even a virtuous lifestyle choice. You must choose. There is no middle ground. Similarly, with transgender ideology, the scriptures are clear that God created us immutably male and female. To claim otherwise is to deny the truth of God's word. Young people, in particular, please hear me. You are growing up in a time and place where the culture around you is boldly calling good evil and evil good. It is not just a question of television or the internet and social media, although those are deeply complicit. 
the very institutions you should be able to trust, the civil government, educational institutions like colleges and public schools, have abandoned all reason and now seek to indoctrinate all comers in the cult of sexual perversion. We must not let ourselves be guided by emotional responses and relationships in how we make moral judgments. Many modern people have been led into erroneous views of homosexuality because they know someone caught in this sin and like him. You know, my friend Steve is gay, and I'm not going to adopt a religious position which says his lifestyle is wrong. Brothers and sisters, this is backwards thinking. We must start with the Word of God and reason from there. We must not start with our fallen emotions and then work backwards to God, particularly where our instincts contradict his revealed word. If we are to remain faithful to Christ, we must regiment our thinking. We must train our minds with the aid of the Holy Spirit to adopt the Bible as the foundation of all our thinking and test each proposition by it. <clears throat> Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now that is, of course, true because it's in the Bible. What the Bible reveals to us about God is who man is and what God requires of us. Answers to the great existential questions of life. While the secular philosopher spends his career searching for truth and contemplating the origin of the universe, the meaning of life, and seeking a system of ethics, those questions are authoritatively answered by the Word of God. To think like a Christian means we believe this proposition to be true. We know who made us, and we know what he requires. We must then order our thinking and search out our hearts until there is no area of our reasoning that is not consistent with the prerogatives and claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we used Jesus' summary of the law this morning for our reading of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is an expression of our love for God. Brothers and sisters, I put it to you this morning that taking every thought captive is what it means to love God with all your mind. We must strive to bring all of our thoughts under his authority and in conformity to his word. When we inevitably fail at this, we must confess, repent, and strive to do better. We must mortify the sinful thoughts we have that are in opposition to God's word. Please let me caution you, brethren, that it is not enough to simply support the right outcomes through your conservative instincts. Adopting pro-family political views because it is how you were raised, or because it is popular in your social circle, is not conforming your thinking to God's word. Whatever your natural inclinations may be, they are sinful and wrong in some regard. Christians often don't see how disobedient we are in the way we think. We can be intellectually lazy, intellectually disloyal to Christ, without knowing it in many cases. Remember, if the claims of Christianity are true, then they are necessarily the central truths of life from which everything else flows. The Bible is the standard of truth against which everything else must be judged. 
We must all seek to discipline our thinking so that what God has revealed in his word becomes foundational for us in all that we do. To quote quote Greg Bonson, the Christian does not have any area of his or her life that is surrendered to neutrality. All right, two, nothing is neutral. We saw from verses three through five that we are indeed at war. There is an ancient enmity between God's people and the reprobate. One critical point of application here, and perhaps this is the most important thing I might say to you this morning, is this. Nothing is neutral. Neutrality is a myth. Before we were converted, we were enemies of God. Those who were not putting their trust in the righteousness of Christ for salvation for their sins stand condemned. They shake their fists at God and violate his holy law with impunity. You are either a Christian or you are an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. Everyone has basic beliefs about the world that guide their thinking and actions. These are sometimes called presuppositions. If you are a Christian, your presuppositions include basic beliefs about the existence of God, the truth of Scripture, and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Non-Christians also have presuppositions. They are often disordered and irrational, but they are there. When speaking to a non-believer about the gospel, never fall into the trap of assuming there is no God and then accepting the burden to prove God exists. This is not only unwise, but it dishonors God. God exists. His Bible tells us so. And anyone who denies it, by the way, knows in his heart that God does, in fact, exist. God's law is written on the face of creation. And just like people aren't neutral, ideas aren't either. Science is either done in such a way as to honor God, guided by his precepts, or done in a a way that denies the truth by rejecting the truth claims of Scripture. Similarly, the way we think about our work, our money, and our relationships. There is no neutrality. And to put it in words that are easy to remember, they aren't neutral, and you shouldn't be either. Do not be duped into living part of your life or structuring part of your thinking along anti-Christian lines. In the academic world, and in many professions, this can be difficult. A Christian biologist can marvel at God's creation and delve into God's glory as he studies the intricacy of the created order. But the secular establishment proclaims that we evolved from the primordial mud and will tolerate no dissent. This is not a neutral position. It is an anti-Christian position. It is an anti-God position. And the Christian must not concede it. He must instead found his understanding of the world on the word of God and reject any truth claim that contradicts it. One of the main false neutrality claims we encounter in our culture is made by people who claim they only believe what they can see and hear or what can be proved by science. This is a false claim, even if the person making it does not realize it. Most of what people think they, in fact, know, they believe because they were told it by someone else or read it in a book or online. 
there is an implicit trust in those sources of information. Consider the position that you are willing to believe everything you read in a chemistry textbook, but not what you read in your Bible. This is not a neutral position. Or consider perhaps believing what you see on Fox News or read in the New York Times. It is a bold and very much non-neutral position to assert that these sources are true, but the Bible is false. The obvious and easy rejoinder to a person making such a claim is this. How do you know? If the speaker responds that the Bible is a book of myths, but the New York Times is serious journalism, ask the same question again. How do you know? If you peel the onion far enough, you will soon expose an unfounded assumption. Without the word of God, there is no foundation. Only God can change someone's heart. We cannot talk or reason people into the kingdom. But as Christians, it is our duty to be consistent and God-honoring in our thinking. We must reject the lie of neutrality and live our lives based on what we know to be true, God's revealed word. All right, third and finally, a Christian worldview. A few moments ago, I defined the term presupposition for you. It is a basic belief about the world that guides our thoughts and actions. Functionally, it is a belief you take for granted and use to make judgments in your day-to-day life. Taken together, all of your presuppositions, your foundational beliefs, form your worldview. Now, everyone has a worldview, and if we're going to take every thought captive to obey Christ, we need to have a Christian worldview. We need to understand the world based on God's revealed word. Our most basic assumption must be that the Bible is true and that it is the revealed word of God. This gives us something the secularist does not have, a complete worldview that explains the basic questions of life. The secular physicist has no explanation for the first cause of the universe, but the Christian does. God is eternal, and he created the world, ex nihilo. The secular ethicist has no authority on which to ground ethics and morality, but the Christian does. God's moral law is clearly revealed in the Bible. The secular politician, proclaiming the supremacy of sexual desire and identity as a supreme good, has nothing to appeal to but his opinion and those of his constituents. But the Christian knows that biblical sexuality is expressed only between one man and one woman, united for life in covenant marriage. The secular philosopher can gaze into his navel and ponder the meaning of life. But the Christian knows that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Brothers and sisters, properly understood, Christianity is a worldview. It gives us the basic assumptions we need to understand the world and live our lives. Cornelius Van Til called it a philosophy of life, and he was correct. In popular culture and in the public square, the world might be willing to allow you a nominal religion. They might allow you to have a Bible at home, as long as you don't claim it trumps their own truth claims. They might allow you to go to church, as long as they don't need you to work that day. They might allow you to teach your religious beliefs to your kids, as long as those beliefs don't contradict the tenets of the sexual revolution that they teach in the government schools and colleges. 
But biblical Christianity will not abide those constraints. If the Bible is true, it necessarily must dominate and guide every aspect of your thinking and every aspect of your life. Because Christianity is a worldview, then if you are committed to Christ for any part of your life, then you necessarily must be committed to Christ in every area of your life. The claims of Christianity, brothers and sisters, do not allow inconsistency. It is fundamental. It affects everything. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you this morning to search your hearts and minds. Consider the ways in which you are living inconsistently with the Christian worldview. Examine your family, your relationships, your schooling, your career, your finances, your hobbies, how you spend your time. Are you fully committed to the Christian worldview? Is the truth of the Word of God at the bottom of your network of beliefs? Do you have any other presuppositions or basic beliefs that are at odds with it? Are you consistently thinking like a Christian? Are you buying into the false beliefs the world tells you are grounded on neutrality? Search your hearts, brethren, and do business with God this morning. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he is conforming Christians evermore to the image of Christ, and that includes our minds and our thinking. Repent regularly and turn from your errant thoughts, seeking to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And if there are any of you here this morning who are not trusting in Christ for your salvation, if you are here this morning and you are not sure about where you stand with God, I call you to repentance as well. Today is the day to embrace the gospel and accept the free gift of eternal life in Christ. Please come talk to me or one of the other elders. Nothing would make us happier this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you will help us to meditate uh, upon the things that you have brought us this morning, that we'll all seek to repent of our errant thoughts and seek every thought captive to the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.